To borrow a line from uh, one of my seminary professors, before I speak, I want to say a few things. What I want to say, especially for those of you who are gathering with us via the live stream uh, in, in many different places, our lead pastor at my church, Bob McGregor, and I uh, do a 15-minute podcast every week called Thinking About It. If uh, three or four of you would start listening to it, you could double our audience probably. Uh, we're, we're not really sure. It uh, hasn't gone viral yet, but, but we enjoy doing it, and people have said they appreciate it. That's not really the point of what I want to say, though. This is what I want to say. Recently, when Bob and I were recording one of those podcasts, we were thinking about stuff that we've learned over the last year in, in the COVID pandemic and functioning as the church in the midst of unusual restrictions. And, and both of us, right off the top, said one of the things we've learned well, you could call it one or two, is it's a twin truth. It's two sides of this truth. One is uh, we, we've learned that thanks to the technology that we enjoy, we are able to carry on most of the ministries of the church in unusual ways, in unusual times. And, and for that, we can be very grateful. But the twin truth is, gathering online is not the same as being together. It's, we're making the best of it and we're grateful for the extent to which we can do that. But it's not the same. It doesn't have all the same value. And so, to you who are joining with the 10 of us here in the building, uh, via live stream, I want to say to you two things. One is, make the best of what you're experiencing at home. Join in the wonderful songs of worship and praise. Stand up to do it. Sing your heart out to the Lord. Engage your whole family in doing it. Join us as we pray. Give attention to God's word. And, and when you think about those after-service conversations that are so valuable that you're not able to have now, why not pick up the phone, send an email, do a Facebook video call? My wife and I learned about that by accident a while back, actually. And, and that's a great tool. Find a way to connect. There are still ways to do it. So that's, that's the one side of it. The other side of it is don't lose your sense of the value and importance of being together as God's people to whatever extent we are able to do that. It is important God calls us to gather, not so we can score points on the great scoreboard in the sky, but so that we can encourage one another as, as we offer God praise together, as we, we teach one another 
as we sing God's truth and as we speak to one another when we have opportunity. Don't lose your sense of the value of that and don't become accustomed uh, to simply being the church on your sofa at home or wherever you happen to be. All right, that's not today's sermon. That's something extra. And, well, if you want to, if you want to send me extra for that, I could give you my email address for an e-transfer. But, no, we don't really need to do that. As we think our way through Peter's first epistle, we're, we're letting Peter guide us in thinking about how we live as exiles, pilgrims, sojourners, strangers, in this age, when, when the church is never quite fully at home. As we await the finality of salvation, when our Lord returns in the new creation. And so Peter's been teaching us about that in a variety of ways. And so when, when Peter talks about the tension that we as exiles, pilgrims, sojourners feel in this age, part of that is, is the tension between church and state. That's what we looked at last week in chapter 2. And that tension continues, and, and we're, we're even more painfully aware here, perhaps, this week than we were in last week. Because today, the doors are locked at Trinity Bible Chapel on the north edge of Waterloo. This is not the time to go into all the details about how we think about all that. It's, it's not a happy story no matter where you're coming from on issues of church and state and church and restrictions. Nothing happy about the story, and we all need to pray that God's will be done by everyone involved in dealing with these issues. So Peter has talked about the tension that God's people feel relative to the state, the governing authorities. But that's probably not the tension that most of us feel most of the time. The more common tension that we feel is at a personal level. When we recognize that we don't quite fully fit in with the world around us in our neighborhood, at work, at school, and, and we may experience a pushback, not from the governing authorities, but from the people much closer to us. Sometimes we experience suffering and injustice because we are followers of Christ. And so today we, we want to move from the, the larger scale, the governing authorities issue, to the level of what it's like to function as individual Christ followers. In, in this age, in a, in a society where we may not be the majority, we may be a distinct minority. And so Peter moves on now from that larger scale point of chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, and, and addresses 
a much more personal topic beginning at verse 18, where he says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because you are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So when Peter turns to the personal level, he, he addresses a category of first century believers who, who, who might indeed feel special tension because they were believers. Those were slaves. If anybody had the potential of suffering in the first century, it was certainly slaves. Now, we need to understand that slavery in the Roman world was not exactly like the slavery that we often think of today. Today, in, in the Western world, in North America, when we think about slavery, probably the first thing that comes to mind is the race-based slavery of, of America. A horrible story. Slavery has existed throughout human history, and, and it hasn't typically been race-based. It wasn't in the Roman world. The household servants, the slaves in the Roman world, um, often had very significant roles to play, not only in the household, but even beyond. Some of them were teachers, doctors, they, they, they served in significant ways. And, and from what I can read, typically in, in the first century Roman world, a lot of slaves, maybe even the majority of slaves, had the possibility of achieving freedom at, at some point in their life. So it wasn't exactly what, it, what we tend to think of perhaps today, but they were still slaves. They, they weren't just working on a contract basis. They were slaves. And so, for, for slaves who had become believers in Christ and who heard the teaching that we read earlier in chapter 2, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, it would be very easy for Christian slaves to say, hey, I'm a somebody. I'm part of the royal priesthood. 
I, I don't need to submit to this master of mine who's not a believer, who thinks I'm a bit weird for believing in Jesus, for following a Jew who was crucified. And so, Christian slaves would be tempted to rebel and demand their freedom. Peter says, you need to submit to your masters. You need to live within the structures of life that are yours. Now he says, do it in, in reverent fear. He has just said in verse 17, honor everyone but fear God. So I think the NIV is right in its translation when, it's, when it recognizes that Peter isn't saying, submit yourselves to your masters in fear of them. He's saying, in reverent fear of God, because God calls you to be faithful in the work you do as a slave, submit to your masters. Not only to those who are good, because that may be easy. You may just feel like a contracted worker. But even, but also to those who are harsh. Fearing God, he says, as a disciple of Christ who is a slave, means you will serve your master faithfully. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul, in a passage like Colossians 3, addresses Christian slaves and Christian masters. And he says to both of them, you need to understand that whatever work you do in this life, as creatures made in God's image to exercise stewardship and dominion over his creation, is work done for him. So, Paul says to slaves, you need to understand that if you're doing honorable work, if you're doing what ought to be done to meet human needs, to help human flourishing, to make human life work, you are ultimately serving your master in heaven. And it's your master in heaven who will properly reward you for what you do. So, all of us need to understand that. That the honorable work we do, of whatever type it may be, is to be done as creatures made in God's image to serve him in this world. It is work done for God. Adam was a worker before he was a sinner. Work is not a curse. Feels like it at times, maybe. And there's a kind of a dark side to every sort of work that we, we may have. But work is a good thing. And so, so Peter says here to Christian slaves, yes, you're part of the royal priesthood, but you are, in your current circumstances, a slave, and you need to be a good slave. Some of those masters are harsh. Peter recognizes that. And he recognizes that sometimes believing slaves may, they may suffer because they are believers. The master may not appreciate their faith, may not understand why they want to get away on the first day of the week to go gather with other 
believers. And sometimes they may suffer. But note, he emphasizes in, in verses 19 and 20, make sure that if you suffer, it's for doing good, not for doing what's not good. It's commendable, he says, if, if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because you're conscious of God, because you're seeking to serve God and thus serve your master and do, do what's good. If you suffer in that way, well, that's commendable. But how would it be to your credit, he says, if you get beaten for doing wrong? It's not to your credit. In other words, Peter's saying to first century slaves, and he would say to those of us who are 21st century workers, do not allow yourself to think, because my employer doesn't seem to appreciate my faith, and, and because I, I, I really think I was passed over for a promotion because I'm a believer, because I think I, I'm somehow I'm not treated properly, and it's related to my faith, don't use that as a temptation to say, well, I'm just not going to serve very well. I can, I can frankly make life difficult for my employer, or if you're a university student, I can make life difficult for this professor. Who, who seems to be intent on challenging my faith rather than appreciating my faith. I, I know ways that you who are students can make it difficult for professors. I, but I am not going to pollute your pure minds by telling you how to do that. Peter would say, make sure that if you suffer, it's for doing good, not for doing evil. I, I've known some Christians who, who suffered. They were, they were perhaps slandered, perhaps mocked. They were mistreated in various ways by the unbelieving people around them. And they were sure they were suffering because they were believers, but in fact, they were suffering because they were jerks. They were frankly hard to get along with. They weren't likable. It's not because of the fruit of the Spirit that they were being persecuted. It was because of some of the fruit of the flesh. So Peter says, we must do what's good even if we suffer. So to us, Peter would say, you know, you're not, if you suffer for being a believer in some ways, you're not the first ones to experience that. And to his immediate readers, Peter makes it clear, you aren't the first ones. In fact, he says, Christ, our Lord, is our pattern to follow in dealing with unjust suffering. That's the point of verses 21 to 23. To, to suffer for doing good, he says, this is what you were called to because Christ suffered for you, 
leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. To follow in his steps, specifically here, Peter relates to a willingness to suffer for doing good and obeying Christ, doing the will of God. Do you remember remember the WWJD bracelets? The What Would Jesus Do bracelets? I don't think I ever owned one, actually. Probably says something about my level of spirituality, but don't think I ever owned one. But I, I remember I've, I've read, especially read, a number of Christian scholars who kind of ridiculed the idea of what would Jesus do. Sometimes along the lines of, well, I mean, to what extent can we really know exactly what Jesus would do? Isn't that kind of a silly thing, that bracelet? I, actually, I think the silliness is on the part of those scholars who attack the bracelet. What would Jesus do? Well, that sounds an awful lot like 1 Peter 2.21. How would Jesus respond? How did Jesus respond when he suffered for doing good? Sanctification, godliness, is frankly about imitating Christ. You don't have to wear a bracelet to do it, but you have to live it. So Peter makes the point here. For he, he didn't commit any sin. He never spoke deceitfully, as humans do. When they insulted him, he didn't retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Now, I mean, we, we, could, we could read through chapters in the, in the Gospels to, to really see that point. I, I'm just going to read a few verses of it. Uh, tradition in the early church that Mark wrote his Gospel on behalf of Peter as a way of sort of saying in print what Peter tended to say when he communicated the good news. Not sure if that, if that was actually the way it was or not, but in any case, we have this in Mark 15, verses 1 to 5. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You've said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Later in the chapter, we will have a description of, of the soldiers mocking him as they put on the purple robe and the crown of thorns. And yet, he did not mock and attack in return. And then after Mark describes his hanging on the cross, talks about the chief priests, the teachers of the law, mocking him as he hangs there. Let him come down. Then we might believe. 
They heaped insults on him, but he did not insult in return. In fact, as he viewed the soldiers down at the foot of the cross, Luke tells us, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So he did not retaliate. Now, that doesn't mean that in all of that, he never said anything about what was true and, and just. So, for example, in John 18, verse 19, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? He spoke, and, 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 he, and he, in a sense, asserted that they really ought to think about the actual evidence and what is true. But he did not pay back in kind. He did not insult those who insulted him. He did not mock those who mocked him. He did not threaten those who punished him. That's the point Jesus made back in the Sermon on the Mount in the text that was read for us earlier in Matthew 5. When he talks about turning the other cheek and handing over the other garment and going the extra mile, the point of all that is to say to them, don't misuse what's called the lex talionis, the law of retribution, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, etc. The point of that in Mosaic law was to guide the judges in providing proportional punishment, punishment that fit the crime. It was not a recipe for personal revenge. Now, that's the way some of the Jews wanted to use it. And that's what Jesus is opposing there. And so in very striking terms, he's saying, it's not about eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, at the level of what you do in response to personal insults. It's not about insulting those who've insulted you and mocking those who've mocked you. In our time and place, for, for those who want to be faithful disciples of Christ, uh, the insults, the mocking, it's there in abundance, actually. How many times have I, have I read something in a newspaper about, about a Christian politician who gets caught saying something about sexual ethics in which, which, in which they defend a traditional biblical understanding of sexual ethics but they're in public office or they're a candidate for public office. And so they become an embarrassment to the leader of their party and the pundits call it a bozo 
eruption. Yeah, it really happens. Unfortunately, the insults don't always come from the unbelieving world. Sometimes the insults come as friendly fire from others who are followers of Christ. Facebook, Twitter are full of insults like that. We're at a dreadful place right now about all that. I know what it is to be insulted on Facebook and Twitter. And that's not at a gathering of pastors where we may challenge one another. That's out there for all the world to see. And the temptation is to fire back. Peter says, that's not what Jesus did. That's not what Jesus taught. Our Lord is our pattern. We follow his example. And, we, and so we don't take revenge and pay back in kind. We, we bless those who insult us rather than insulting in return. And so Peter makes it clear, Jesus is our example. The God-man, the Messiah, is, is the perfect picture of what God calls humanity to be. He is our example. But Peter will make very clear here, emphatically, Jesus is our example, but he's more than our example. His obedience made him our atoning sacrifice. The righteous one who died for the unrighteous bearing the penalty that we justly ought to bear. So at verse 24, he turns from the point of example to say, he bore, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. In, a, in the mystery of the gospel, in a way we can't fully comprehend our sins were laid on him. He suffered what we ought to suffer. That, that the justice of God who is holy would be satisfied. And yet all of it was a manifestation of God's love in the gift of his son who loved us and gave himself for us. Modern liberal theological notions of Jesus have fastened on Jesus as teacher and example. And that's true, but it's reductionistic to say it's all about his ethics. It's not all about his ethics. The good news is, the righteous one, the perfect teacher, the perfect human, gave his perfect human life for us to atone for our sins. If Jesus were only our example, we, you and I, would be condemned. 
I can't, well, I, I can speak for you on the basis of Scripture. I can speak for myself experientially. I haven't lived up to his example. So if I only have example of what God calls us to be, well, that's not very good news. The good news is he obeyed vicariously. He obeyed for us even to the point of bearing our sins on the cross. And Peter says he did it so that we might, um, we might die to our sins and, and live for righteousness. By his atoning death, he purchased for us both the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit to make us new persons. God loves you just the way you are, but too much to let you stay that way. The good news is we're forgiven and we're being transformed. Amazingly, in spite of how good this news is, in our day, there is unfortunately among, among those who teach Scripture, pastors, scholars. There's all too often an embarrassment about the idea of what we call penal substitutionary atonement. And, and so, here, there, and everywhere, we have teachers who want to say, oh, it's about moral example, it's about display of the love of God, um, it's about the victory of Christ over Satan and the powers of evil. It is all of those things, but it is all of those things because he gave his life as a substitute and paid the penalty that you and I ought to pay. Keith Getty and Stuart Townend have collaborated to write a bunch of really wonderful songs of praise to God and communication of gospel truth. They're called contemporary hymns, but if the word hymn is a hang-up for you, just call them worship songs. Whatever you call them, they're wonderful songs. One of the songs that Keith and Stuart wrote which is probably the best known, is, is in Christ alone. And, and there, are, there are parts of it that, that I can barely sing without myself getting emotionally um, caught up. I'm, I'm sort of emotionally challenged, but there are truths in that song that make it very hard to keep it together. Um, and, and in particular, a part of it is, is in the middle of the second stanza in which the words remind us that till on, on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Three years ago, <clears throat> I was at an international conference on Baptist studies, which that year met at uh, Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Baylor is a, a Baptist university in some sense. Each morning during the conference, we started 
um, with a time of, uh, of worship and, and a brief message from Scripture. The second morning, we sang in Christ alone. We sang it from, uh, from the hymnals that were there in that chapel at Baylor University. You remember hymnals? You, most of you know what they are. Um, so we're singing the song, and in the second stanza, I, f- I find, I'm looking at the words, and we end up singing, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Not the wrath of God was satisfied. And I thought, whoa. Okay, this hymnal was put together by a group of self-described moderate Baptists. Somewhere on the left end of the theological spectrum. But the idea of the death of Christ somehow satisfying the wrath of God was just unpalatable. So they violated copyright and changed the song. And I know they didn't have permission to do it because a few years earlier, the Presbyterian Church in the USA developing a revised hymnal, wanted to use in Christ alone, and they asked Keith and Stuart for permission to change the words to the love of God was magnified. And Keith and Stuart said, no, we won't allow it. Now, was the love of God magnified in the death of Christ? Obviously it was. But it all hangs together because, as John says in 1 John 4, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his one and only son to be the propitiation, that which turns away wrath, propitiation for our sins. Love and justice meet at the cross. Both are true. The problem is not in saying the love of God was magnified. The problem comes in saying God's wrath against sin is real and the death of Christ delivered us from that. If Christ didn't bear the wrath of God for us, then God's justice would demand that we bear it. So, Christ provided an example in the way he responded to suffering. But the truth goes far beyond that. He was our example, but not just our example. He was our substitute. Now, in in those verses that we just read, It's a mosaic of pieces of Isaiah 53, the prophet's anticipation of the Messiah who would suffer for the sins of his people. It's worth hearing all that Isaiah said. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And so, when you ponder that, even if being a Christ follower involves unjust suffering, how could you not follow him? Let's pray. Our Father, we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. That's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. We acknowledge he is Lord, the one who lived the perfect human life, the one whom we are called to imitate and follow. We also confess that he offered that perfect human life as a sacrifice for our sins. He loved us and gave himself for us. And so draw us today into a fuller experience of that love, that we might follow him faithfully and declare the good news of what you have done in him for our salvation. We give you praise through Christ our Savior and Lord. Amen.